Hey, it's episode number 17 of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. This week on the show, co-founder of the podcast network Relay FM, Mike Hurley, joins us. We talk about the design of everyday things, the impact of companies like Apple and Slack on how we build things, and why it's so hard to rebrand a business. Let's get right to it. I got a new dishwasher today. Oh, yeah? So that's big news. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, again, like, you know, I've been kind of transitioning. I used to own a home in San Francisco, now I live in London, right? And, uh, and, and I rent here. So getting a new dishwasher mm-hmm. is just, like, the entire scope of the task was to send an email to the building manager. And then, um, and then today I came home and there was a new dishwasher in there. Um, I only raised that because the, uh, I wanted to talk about the interface a little bit. I open up this new dishwasher. It looks nice. It's all shiny, new, not yet, and, and beautifully installed. But the UI on this dishwasher is shockingly bad. Uh, I don't know if you, are, you have opinions about this sort of thing, but it is a series of indecipherable buttons with a, a LED window in the middle that just shows either numbers or letters, but only three or four at a time. You can picture what I'm talking about? Yeah, I can. And having uh, just bought a home, I'm having similar scenarios, especially because we are taking appliances that somebody else owned Mm. and we do not have the instructions for them. So I'm having to decipher things. Like, for example, did you know (laughs) that there are some ovens that if the clock is not set, they will not work? Like, you have to set the time on the oven for the oven to heat up. For it to, to make heat at all. It needs to know it, all it, it will do is blow cold air until you oh, it'll, set, it'll, the, it'll set sort of the correct on. time. <laughs> it will come on and it will just blow cold air, no hot, no heat, until you have set the time. And not that you're like setting the time to cook, like how long do you want it to cook? No, like actually tell it what the time is. Yeah, that's, that's indicative <laughs> of the experience that I've had with many of these <laughs> devices. It's insane. Yeah. I don't know, you know, because we just had, what was it, maybe two weeks ago, uh, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Where they have where where it goes from the oh that's interesting to oh my god that is absurd in in the like connected devices right it's all yep. hardware and so there's you know awesome new drones and whatever new Android phones I don't you know stuff like that but then there's always like Samsung has the refrigerator with an iPad on the front or whatever it always felt like this is a hardware company trying to figure out ooh we want to be uh, interactive and completely getting it wrong but I'm sort of now coming around to like my Stupid new dishwasher doesn't need all these crazy buttons and 40-year-old technology of an LED display on the front. All it needs is a Bluetooth chip and an app. Yes. And the interface could be, I mean, then you could do some proper interaction design and like set timers and set delays and set cycles and you'd have room on a beautiful retina screen to be able to clearly express all of this stuff. Oh, Honestly, even better, like a way to tie in to something like the Echo or HomeKit. Yeah. So then the interface is developed by somebody else completely. That's my dream. Well, so that's always detention, right? I mean, we Uh see this in cars right now, the display and the dashboard. Who's going to control that? Because all anybody really wants to do is use their phone. Yep. And and CarPlay and whatever Android Drive or I I don't know. Android Auto. Auto, right. Both of those just take some limited subset of quote-unquote safe features, put them in the screen. And from there, it's the interface you always know, right? And you've used before. But, the, you know, Ford really technically doesn't want that. They want to own the, quote, user experience, right? They want their customer to have the experience of Ford, which historically has been terrible. So mm-hmm. I don't know if, like, this is a Bosch dishwasher. Does Bosch want to make its own app? 
is Bosch going to have some kind of like appliance operating system where all of their items talk or all of their things talk together and there's one UI to it all and all of that? I think that's unlikely, but I think things like Alexa, I got Alexa, by the way, okay, all right, an Echo, and, uh, and it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Pretty great. Pretty good. Yeah, like is that is that the platform layer, and then the appliances just do what they always have done and include a communication chip. I think it's like a classic example of big companies thinking that they're more than they are to people. You know that that like somebody like a Bosch that they're believing that their customers really value the experience that they provide as a whole, when really all people want is a well-made dishwasher that works well. You know, and, yeah. and for a lot of people now, that means tying into another service or like, you know, go back, going back to the Ford example, I don't think anybody is buying a Ford because of how good the in-car entertainment system is. But to Ford, they think that that's part of their overall puzzle and really yeah. they're not the experts at that. And I think their customers would be happier with it all being taken over by Apple or Google or somebody yeah. else. So I think that's true today, and I think ultimately it's it's really bad news for manufacturers over time. It is that classic, I think it was Balmer talking about the iPhone 10 years ago, saying yeah. they're not just going to walk in here and, or no, maybe it's the, the uh, head of BlackBerry who was saying, like, the computer people aren't just going to walk in here and, like, start making phones and think that they're going to be better mm-hmm. and that people are going to switch. Like, we've been making phones for years. We get this, Right. So I think when you see companies like Tesla saying like, hey, we're a technology company, we're going to make cars and they're going to be way better and they're going to be much simpler. People are going to like them a lot better. I think, you know, companies like Ford. So I don't know if there's going to be a dishwasher company, you know, like a home appliance company, <laughs> but there, why not? There, there may be, be, right? Like, they could be. What if Amazon as part of the Echo platform started making dishwashers and refrigerators? I don't know. It's interesting. I think it's... Um, At the very least, white labeling them, you know? Well, yeah, Sure. At the very least, I think the whole allegiance to brands is up in the air right now for all of this yep. stuff. I think yeah. so. Uh, anyway, why are you on my show? Because you asked me. <laughs> all right, so this is a little different. I didn't actually expect to talk about dishwashers for, for 10 minutes, but, um, but it's interesting. But no, I wanted you to be on the show. It's a little mm-hmm. different. So normally I have uh, people in the design industry who have, um, and, I, and I tend to towards, you know, people with a lot of experience who have, you know, uh, have some uh, stories to tell about particular topics, whereas you are the owner of a podcast network. Um, and I think yep. that's only like your second job, right? Like, that you've ever had? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to have you on the show because we have from time to time lunches mm-hmm. in which you ask me great questions about like, what, it is, what is this design stuff that you do all the time? I, I, I have an interest in it, but no understanding of it. And I thought it might be interesting for us to have a conversation like that. Yeah, I also think one of the first questions I asked you was, Jeff, what is a venture capitalist? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't even really know what that job is all about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I gave you a good answer. Uh, I'm not sure I've figured the job out entirely, to be perfectly honest. But... Um, but I'm, tr- I'm working at it. Anyway, let me back up. You are one of the co-founders of Relay FM, which is, was mm-hmm. kind enough to agree to let me do a podcast on your network, you and Stephen Hackett, right? Yep. How long have you guys been doing that? So Relay FM has been around since August 2015. So oh. like two and a half years now. Yeah. But I've been podcasting uh, this year will be my seventh year. In April, I would have been doing this for seven years. And I've kind of just, I had some independent stuff. Um, then I was uh, doing some shows for 5x5, Five Five, and then we broke out and created our own network, uh, Relay FM, in, in like two and a half years ago. 
It's been really successful. I think you, you guys have done a great job. Although, you know, you. I'm, I'm saying that from a very biased perspective, but honestly, the rest of the, <laughs> the, rest of the, uh, the podcasts that are out there on the network, I, I enjoy them all. So, well done. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very, um, I think it's a mixture of luck and hard work. I think anything successful is a mixture of both. And uh, we've worked, we worked very hard, which meant that we were lucky enough to attract a lot of very interesting folk to have their shows of us, including yourself. Mm. And uh, I think that we are able to, in that, all work together to try and create an interesting set of shows. You know, me and Stephen are not heavily involved in the production of the shows that we are not on. You know, we, we give assistance where we need to, but we're not we're not like listening and approving all of the shows or anything like that. But I think it's because we've created this group of like-minded people who work together and talk together every day that we've ended up creating a level of quality that is expected from Relay FM shows, which we're both very proud of, to the point where, you know, like you say, a Relay FM show is a Relay FM show, and people know what they're going to get. And uh, luckily, over time, that's become that people expect they're going to get something good. You started mostly by podcasting about Apple? Yeah, and that's still the core of what I do, I think. Why that topic? I've been curious about that. So I started my very first show with a, a, a school friend of mine, and it was about Apple, and it had some more technology and pop culture stuff, but we tended to trend towards Apple. And, you know, this is in 2010, so we started our show the week the iPad was announced. Ah, so if okay. you think about that trajectory, Apple has dominated the technology scene since then, you know, with, from the news cycle to financials. And over time, I've tried to, to veer into other realms. And on some of my Apple shows, we talk about technology white, more, white, more broadly. But Apple has always been kind of the centerpiece of that. And I think it's... In the same reason that there are a lot of blogs and websites created by individuals that are successful is that there is a a community around Apple that seem to value and support the people, like the people that they like to get entertainment from. Mm-hmm. And that has in some turn ended up being able to create a living for a bunch of people. And there are definitely other avenues of technology which have these individuals in. But I would argue that there there are more people that are able to support themselves and make a living independently being observers of Apple than any other technology company. And that probably comes just from the fact that Apple is the biggest single technology company. So everything else kind of falls in line with that. Yeah, it's interesting though, right? Because like right up there with Apple is Amazon. But I don't find a lot of, you know, blogs or podcasts about Amazon. Or Google, for that matter, to be perfectly honest, you know? There's something that, that mm-hmm. ca- captures people's imaginations around this. I find it interesting for two reasons, kind of connected to the stuff that I do and have done in my career with design and what I think of as kind of the audience of this podcast, why they would be interested in it. I think primarily because if I look at my own career, uh, I started using Apple products very early, you know, in college. But mm-hmm. I could continue to use them in my job because I was doing web design and production work, and the Mac had the tools to be able to do that, right? There, there is a, uh, 
uh, predominance of creative tools and creative people using Macs. And so I think there's just an, from an audience standpoint, that's one aspect of it that's interesting. But yeah. the thing I find a little more interesting, especially in that arc of time you were talking about, which I would call probably the last 10 years, right? iPhone's 10 years old now, isn't it? And um, It is, yeah. Yeah. So that period of time when Apple, and I think they trade off with Exxon, the oil company, as being the world's most valuable company. And almost the sense of like satisfaction that designers finally have after all these years of Mac being this like, you know, this eclipsed in market share by Windows, that finally we get to this era where the best design products are now also the most uh, have, have produced the most valuable company in the world. Like this, this finally like, I don't, we, we've been telling you this for decades and now finally it's here. And I think that uh, has a lot to do with it as well. This sense of like, we have always believed as, you know, a bunch of craftspeople or, or as an industry designers, the creative world, that better design makes better products that end up being more profitable because of the customer experience. And that has not always been the case in technology at all. And I think Apple's obsession with design has proven that point out in, and in a way that has been, well, changing the world. I mean, just a billion devices. And um, I think they have, I was just looking at their earnings report that came out this week. Yeah. They now have almost a quarter of a trillion dollars in cash. I don't even know what a company could do with that amount of money anymore. I, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> you know? Well, there's two answers to that, I think. One answer is anything you <laughs> do anything. And I honestly, I think a lot of the complaints that people have had lately is that Apple is doing too much and some of the quality is starting to lower because they mm -hmm. feel too sp spread too thinly. And we hear, you know, reports of like, oh, they're not doing a car anymore or whatever, like things like that. But that's, I think, a good example. They could do anything but uh, with the money, but at what cost to the existing product line and the customer satisfaction. Yeah. The other answer to that is they can persist, which is mm -hmm. comforting, yes. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, things could go real south for them, and they could they could go along. I could go on it for a long time. Like Nintendo is a very good example right. of that, actually. Right. That they are still to a point coasting on the money that they made from the Wii and the DS, and and they were able to have some bad products and survive it because they assembled an insanely huge war chest during that time. You know, when we look at. Um... I don't know, the work that I do on the Mac or the phone that I carry in my pocket, I would be more than happy for a better competitor to come along, but I would be less happy for Apple to stumble and we have to go back to some of the tools we had used in the past that just aren't there anymore. You know what I mean? So that's what I mean. I by think sort that's of, the core of yeah. like the, the fear and concern that people have right now um, is that there, there doesn't appear to be someone whose stuff is so good and so revolutionary that it's going to push Apple down. Um, like there, are, there are stuff that is comparably, like compar comparably good, right? The the Google Pixel was a fantastic phone, but it's not like leaps and bounds better than an iPhone. So the fear of like if if you know people feel that if Apple aren't doing things the way that that they think they should be doing, or based upon trends of the past, we got concerned that they're gonna stumble, and then we're gonna have to go somewhere else, somewhere that actually might not necessarily provide us with a greater experience. That is, though, to be fair, a bit of hand-wringing, you know? I mean, I understand. Yes, definitely. It, it is. It builds some anxiety, and I, and I get mm -hmm. that. I think perhaps, and part of the problem is the constant news cycle around Apple. Yeah, it is. You know, that every tiny thing leads to all these projections of what it could mean. Yep. 
I don't know. I've been so personally kind of end of the year, holiday time, new year, uh, resolutions, all that kind of stuff. I'm finding myself just tired of the news. Um, there's it, for, for many, many different reasons that we don't have to get into yep. here in the podcast, but just realizing that looking at Twitter every day, looking at newspapers and blogs every day was making me less happy over time, less satisfied. And so I have switched and, um, done a lot of, made a lot of changes around that, which is, has actually improved, uh, things for me, which I think is good. But it was really interesting this week when I saw a headline about Apple having the most profitable quarter ever, or the highest revenue ever, one of the two, just having a phenomenal Q4. Yep. And it reminded me of over the summer, all of the hand wringing around the headphone jack. <laughs> Yeah. And like, oh my God. And then when the phone debuted without a headphone jack and using the iPhone 6 form factor, that that was the end. These are end times. This is, you know, they're not innovating and, and, and on and on. And, I re and, it, and it occurred to me that I could have gotten at, at this point in, you know, end of January or beginning of February 2017, the same level of actual news by watching the keynote reading a couple of reviews when the phone was released and then hearing the earnings report. Those three bits of information would have brought me to the same place as what has ended up after all of this news. And, I, and, and so part of me wonders, I don't know, it, it has made me very reflective on how I consume information and, and, and how I balance this like desire as both you know, a designer and now an investor to stay up to date and stay current see what's happening, save the trends, and this other side as a human of feeling overwhelmed and bogged down by too much happening all the time. It's a really tricky balance. There is an interesting offshoot about the headphone jack and the press, though, in that I think that uh, Apple may have sold the most iPhones ever in this quarter, and the argument can be that no, you know, they did. But I mean, like, I think that the reason that they did it and the reason that we can move to the argument of nobody cares about the headphone jack is because Apple understands their customers well enough and manipulated the press very interestingly about six months before. Everybody went into, kind of everybody that cared and went into this presentation knowing there would be no headphone jack on the phone. And, and I think that that news spread outward prior to the announcement. I think it was just one of those things. It was like a pop culture thing. If you knew anything about technology, if you read anything about technology, you knew there was going to be no headphone jack there. And I think that that helped. Um, I think that ultimately, Apple knows their customers well enough to know that it was never going to be a problem and people just continue to use their phones that are in the box. But I think that they also used the news cycle to their advantage by talking about this about six months before the phone was even released. So everybody got over their anger. I think it would have been very different. They they did that with leaks, right? Didn't they like leak it to mm -hmm. the Wall Street Journal or something like that? Yeah, I think it was either the Wall Street Journal or Fast Company. Yeah. Somebody got the leak, um, and it was it was a clear leak because of the the the, the outlet that reported on the rumor. Um, so it was it was a smart move from them, and I don't think it would have necessarily made it that that they may not have sold as many, but I think it just made them made it easier for them to sell it because they didn't have to deal with a month of outrage after the phone was released. The outrage came beforehand and then everybody got over it. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by SetApp, the revolutionary new service for discovering and using the best apps for your Mac. So imagine this, what if there was a way to know that every app you installed was not only safe, but also of the highest quality and had frequent updates? 
That is what SetApp is here to do. Developed by MacPaw, SetApp gives you easy access to a library of quality Mac apps like Ulysses, Rapid Weaver 7, Reveal, iStats Menu, and many, many more. You pay just one monthly fee. There's no ads. There's no more paid upgrades. Your subscription gives you access to new software and it supports the developers to continue their work. It's kind of the best of both worlds. So to try SetApp today, just go to setapp.com. That's S-E-T-A-P-P.com. Thank you so much to Setup from MacPaw for support of this show and Relay FM. I don't know how do you, uh, do you and Stephen when you as you're building your small business talk much about uh, or how do you think about design and the the way you present your yourself as a company? It's been very important to us. Um, Stephen has very strong opinions. Like he he I believe he went to a design school. He did that. That was one of the things that he did before. He's, he has a journalism degree, but I think he also went to design school and he has a real sense of how he wants things to look. Um and I mean I do too. I have my own tastes and I think a lot of my sensibilities about how everything that we we make looks comes from a lot of his opinions as well. But we we work with a very very talented designer. Um, who uh, he goes by Forgotten Towel on the internet, he, he, and uh, he has a, a small design firm called Graphic Syndicate, which is the, the, the company that he created, like the sort of the the, the, the small agency, a small company that he created for himself for his work, for his portfolio of work. And we uh, we found the person we call Frank uh, by short because he created some artwork, like some fan art for a show that I did. Before oh, Relay FM, interesting. And I went to him with some some work I needed done personally, and he made such such a great job. When it was time for Relay FM to exist, uh, we contacted him and asked if he'd be interested. And basically, everything that looks, anything that you can see from Relay FM, comes from Frank. Everything um, from the way that our site looks to all of our artwork to all of our merchandise, it all comes from him. And we have a, you know, we work together now at this point, you know, like he, he doesn't work for us. We work with him sure. uh, and he works with us to create the way that things look for us. And we continue to want to innovate that. We have some, uh, some questions about our website and about the way that things should look there, which we're trying to address because we've grown, you know, we, we had a really great website for five podcasts. Uh, but we now have over 20 and, and there are maybe just some things we want to look at there. But we care a lot, especially about show artwork. Um, and we luckily found someone who could present our ideas in a very interesting way. So how do you guys work together? Um, he's not, I mean, first of all, you and Steven are uh, on separate continents. Mm -hmm. So you, you, your uh, business partner uh, is, you know, thousands of miles away from you. Uh, and where's your designer? Frank, you said his name was? Uh, he's in France. All right. So uh, you guys are completely distributed. What's what's that uh, relationship like? Well, we we use Slack, <laughs> which I feel like at this point is just the assumed way that people talk to each other. But the backbone of everything uh, at Relay FM is run through Slack. And we started. I mean, when we first started, we didn't use Slack. We used something called GroupMe. Oh yeah. Um, which yeah. which is just like a chat app. But then as, as it grew past like five or six people, group me started to kind of fall apart for us. And then we used Slack. Uh, and we used the free account for a long time. Then we transitioned to the paid account. 
because we wanted some of the security features that it provides and some of the additional integrations. And I think for a while, maybe it still is, like Slack was our largest single expense as a business, <laughs> which is kind of a funny thing. Wait, more, I mean, more than like podcast bandwidth? Yeah. Wow. I think so. Because that's not actually very expensive. That's, you know, that's kind of in the region of like $20 a month for, for a show. Oh, yeah. All right. And, you know, we have like two to three times the amount of people in our Slack than we do shows, I think. <laughs> um, or at least it feels like that. There are, you know, there are a lot of people that are in our Slack group. And we pay for every single one of them, you know. And frankly, we're happy to do that because Slack is such a great tool for us. and. I don't know how everybody would communicate without it. Like, I guess it would be lots of email, which would be terrible because the thing about the thing about Slack is you can just naturally assume that people have seen the message, and/or there are so many ways for them to just give you a nod that they've seen it. Yep. Yeah. You know, even with just things like, which I think people laughed at initially, but I think has become a very valuable tool, which is the emoji reactions. You know, people can just throw you a little thing and it's like, hey, I've seen this. But if it was email that we were sending around to each other, I'm sure it would also take a bunch of follow-up emails to ensure that somebody has seen the message. Um, and or there would be reply-alls or messages that should be replied-all, which are not. And, and it would just eventually end up in a in a mess and just a, a real mess. Yeah, I, I, you know, I try to think back to how we used to do work before there was real-time chat all the time. Um, and I, and in some ways I can't even remember, <laughs> it was just like, uh, it's, it's gotten so much easier and in a different way, burdensome, but not just easier, but more real is, I don't know. That's not a good way to describe it. You just, you mentioned, uh, emoji reactions, right? Mm -hmm. And I, th I have some thoughts on that. Like, I think that's a very big deal in a way that we don't fully understand yet, which is that. If you think about you're working with a team and you don't, you, you, what you're doing with Relay is interesting is that you're really building a community, but these are people that don't necessarily work together or, and, and what I mean by that is they don't necessarily rely on one another. So it no. is, but it is wonderful and welcoming and, and I think important for what you do. And I think generally lifts the quality of all the podcasts because everybody learns from each other and all of that is wonderful. But with yep. a team you know, imagine a dozen people or 20 people who are all building a product together and they all have various different jobs and they really rely on one another. Like what we are, well, what we're supposed to be taught, I don't know how many people actually get taught this, but that when you're relying on somebody else and they do something that cements that, you should tell them that. You should show them appreciation and that builds your relationship, right? Like just basic one-on-one, -on -one, human to human stuff. Mm -hmm. And the way you're supposed to do that, ostensibly, is you'd get up from your desk and go and look at the other person in the eyes and say, you know that thing you did? I really appreciated it, and I value our relationship, and I'm glad that we work together. And I think, you know, if you do that, that's amazing, and that builds, strengthens relationships, makes your job go better, makes you like your work more, makes them like their work more. Every, all the benefits are there. The reality is that's very emotionally expensive. Like, it's hard to do. And... I don't think we need replacements for that, but I do think that the the GIF reactions that we use in chat where I 
I don't know, you know, like I merged some code and a and GitHub or Slackbot or, or uh, shows a little status update in in Slack, and all the reactions come. I think those are like little micro versions of that standing up and saying I appreciate you, and that they happen all the time. They happen yep. every day, and they accumulate into much more than those. Uh, physical interactions that those in-person interactions were supposed to do, let alone the fact that w- nobody works in the same office anymore. Well, that's a, <laughs> I might be jumping the gun, but, um, but we're, get, we're heading in that direction. We're working yeah. happen anywhere and people can work together. And these tiny little appreciations between each other and Slack, I think, are incredibly valuable to l- elevate the level of trust in a team and make them, frankly, far more productive be- because of that trust. And I would, you know, argue that the, the person receiving the the compliment or the reactions, I would bet that there isn't much more of a of a good feeling you get out of somebody coming to actually talk to you as opposed to just seeing those emotions come in. Like mm-hmm. I assume that it's 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 pretty similar. I would expect what you get out of it, but the, it's way easier for the person giving it. It it takes a lot less emotional energy yep. to give it a thumbs up than it would take to actually get up and go and thank somebody every single time. But the person who's receiving those thumbs up, they, they get, I reckon, a similar kind of feeling. There's a, there's a cost-benefit ratio there that's higher even than yep. the in-person one. Um, I think so. And, because and you can frequent. get those thanks from more people that way. Yeah, which You get like a, a larger response um, than if you know you send an email to one person and then they say, oh, thanks so much for doing that. And yeah. the rest of the team have no idea it's even happened. Yeah. yeah. Now, that said, I, I also, my experience with building Typekit when we were, I think we were probably about 40% distributed. So there was, a, mm-hmm. there was a headquarters in San Francisco that had just over the majority of people working there and then people all over the world. And we made sure at least, well, what we said was twice a year, we will bring everybody together. Um, for a week of being together, and then either one or two more times per year, you should come individually. Uh, and then we staggered those out. So there was always mm-hmm. this sort of checking it. And those weeks that we spent together, were it was actually interesting and almost better than if we had all been in San Francisco all the time. Because then it was special, and we would like we would get a sense of momentum around like, all right, we're yeah. going to get all of this stuff done before the next, we call them Typekit Paloozas. So before the next Typekit Palooza, we'll have, it, we'll have all of this work done. We'll set aside some time to sort of post-mortem and celebrate that work. We'll set up some time to look at the next, you know, a uh, few months ahead. And then we're going to set aside some time to like go drive go-karts or do a cooking class yeah. or something like that. You know, it's a team building stuff, but it felt like a week of kind of holiday. It was certainly working, but, you know, it was fun. It was different and it shook everybody up. And then we all sat together and looked at each other and talked. And so I think it's both, right? I think you need both, but anyway. Slack is a very good replacement for human communication. It is not a replacement for human interaction. Yep. And I feel like you have to have both of those things, but the interactions don't need to happen as often as the communication. Right. Right. Yeah. But no, you're right. Like, before we had all of this real-time communication, everything was really done by email, and it was it was pretty bad. So much process of at least you know from my experience in making design, so much process was accomplished by writing paragraphs of text with email attachments of files. So, and you would literally say like, open up the file, look at the second artboard. Here's what I mean by this and this and this. And like, it, uh, it was, um, is that how you communicated with the, the remote workers at Typekit? 
no, we used chat from the beginning. Okay. What type of chat? When we started Typekit 2008, we used 37 Signals Campfire and, um, yeah. and started with that. We still did, uh, and it wasn't until maybe 18 months later, maybe even two years, that we had our first actual remote remote employee. So, and man, when a, mm-hmm. when a company is that small, we started at four people. Then we grew to, you know, six, seven. The way that we designed it was we just kept moving offices to bigger single rooms with one bigger table in the middle that everybody sat around until that was untenable. But um, <laughs> Until the table could get no bigger. <laughs> but when, when you have six people in the company and they are literally sitting at the equivalent of a dining table, you know, team communications is literally lifting your head up and saying, hey. And everybody stops and looks at you and then you say mm-hmm. a, word, a sentence out loud and then everybody has heard it. And so it's, it's much easier than, yep. I don't know, working at Adobe with 14,000 people. And, uh, but anyway, that's why I think what Slack has done this week with um, the Enterprise Grid product they just announced, super, super interesting, which is this yeah. kind of overall layer of administration on top of it so that you can have the individual teams of a dozen people all throughout the company. But uh, there's also a directory for everybody else who's in other Slack teams, and then shared channels, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, there have been like a lot of people that have tried to make this product, I think, like of integrating Slacks, but it needs Slack to do it, which is very smart. I have have a question for you, Jeff. All right. I'm working on on a theory right now that Facebook is the last social network of its kind. Like there will never be something to replace Facebook because it's so big. And all of and now people and all of the new social networks that people are moving to, they just do one element or one or two elements. Like there isn't, there is. I don't think there will ever be a company like MySpace, you know, like Facebook again, where it is an all-encompassing social network. I'm I'm also kind of starting to think that there may never be another product like Slack, like that. It's getting so big and getting to the point that it will be the last kind of large group communication engine and that anything that comes after it would be smaller mm. and maybe would only do facets of it as opposed to trying to be all-encompassing your entire company all in one place. Everybody's communicating in groups and in DMs. And, and I wonder if it might get itself to the point where Slack is as big as Facebook in its world. I think uh, there would have been people different from us, but uh, people with just as strong opinions about uh, enterprise, uh, about Exchange, Outlook, Microsoft's mm-hmm. suite of internal tools, and Office and things like that. Ten years ago, one of the principles I think in being an investor is to never say something can't get something can't come down and something can't get bigger. At this, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, yeah. I actually think that's the way you change big organizations is you make better smaller ones that take their business rather than trying to like move the ship. But anyway, but I think that's a super interesting theory that, that Slack could potentially become even bigger, more ingrained, more ubiquitous than uh, that sort of exchange outlook site point sort of thing that, that Microsoft created over the last 30 years. That's pretty yeah, interesting. I do think that is going to be the case just because of where they're moving. Like I, I think that they will be just the de facto as they're, you know, they're bringing in calling, they're bringing in video, they're bringing in screen sharing. 
it's becoming, I think, mm-hmm. more and more compelling. Mm-hmm. But as they do that, they, I mean, this is echoes of the Apple conversation we were just having. They will get uh, bigger. They will have yep. more distraction. They will uh, be less efficient, allowing for more stuff to happen. There's also this yeah. theory. And they risk hurting the, the product. Of course. Yeah. The core product, the thing that actually provides Mm -hmm. all the value for people as opposed to these ancillary things you're able to do just because you have all of that core value. Yeah. Yeah. That's possible. There is also this theory of punctuated equilibrium, which is uh, from kind of evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. The idea that evolution is not just one smooth, long curve over time, but much more, looks much more like a staircase with these big events that happen all at once, like a meteor, mm. a meteor hits the world and there are no more dinosaurs and mammals take over, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's essentially the idea. But technology kind of follows that as well, where yep. you have very, very early computing and then all of a sudden, bang, there's the transistor. And you can make chips and then computing like veers off in a whole different uh, rate of growth. And that grows for a few decades and then all of a sudden boom you have the personal computer you have the you know the apple II and the ibm pc and it veers off and we can't anticipate what those things are 10 years ago the iphone right the 1993 the World Wide web these are punctuated equilibrium everything gets thrown up in the air and then we find a new normal and then that sort of growth curve continues for a while and then everything goes up in the air so that's one of the reasons i'm always hesitant to say never this something will this will never happen. We may have some kind of, and I can never really speculate what it's going to be, but we could have something like augmented reality that we haven't seen yet, that nobody's executed on properly, that the only people working on it are scientists and kind of you know wackos. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of out there technology that we would put on glasses and be able to overlay computing in a way that is almost indistinguishable from reality, but. If that were the case, if it were as high of a resolution as reality is, and it's as simple as putting on a lightweight pair of glasses or contact lenses for that matter, then suddenly the table that I'm sitting at right now is filled with the other people on my team and we are just working as if we're in the same place. Like, you know, that's one speculative kind of sci-fi version of the future. But then there's another company that started as a startup and grew rapidly and became a $8 billion company in um, 18 months or something, whatever Slack did. Like I could see that kind of stuff happening. And that's the mm-hmm. sort of, you know, to your very first question when we met, what does a VC do? Is to try to see when that's happening and try to catch hold of it in some way, hopefully, or to have some opinions on what the future should look like or what could look like and try to put some bets against that to try to to spur that technological innovation to happen by adding money to it. Anyway, that's, uh, I think, a bit of a tangent around when we see a company that emerges like Microsoft did or like Slack has, where the next wave of opportunity or innovation can really come from. So we veered off in a direction, but we were talking about Apple uh, originally, and they did something, I guess, in the last week or so, which is interesting in that they changed all of the fonts on their website and in some of their promotional materials to be the San Francisco font that they created. So Apple created that font San Francisco, which is in all of our devices, and now it's in their public materials as well. Yeah, yeah. And this got me kind of thinking about the way that design is done. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about why it took them the time that it did to roll this out like 
if they created this font that they really liked that they would put on their devices, why wouldn't they just change the website immediately? Yeah. Uh, I see a flavor of that question happen whenever some big corporation rolls out a new logo and you yes. hear something yes. like the $25 million rollout of Citibank's new brand. And people are like, $25 million <laughs> like for a logo? <laughs> like my nephew can make a logo. <laughs> Well, it was like when uh, Google, Google changed theirs, right? And it was an obscene amount of money and and they didn't seem to look like they made that much of a change. It's really funny you mention that because just yesterday I was like walking over to my office and there is this building about halfway there and there were construction workers, like, you know, guys with hard hats and like those guys that were taking a sign off of the building and putting up a new sign on the building. And there was all these other people like scraping decals off of the doors and the windows and all of this stuff and the company hadn't changed they had just it was a new design right it was a new brand that they were installing and i'm like construction workers have to take your sketch file and put it up on top of the building you know, like, <laughs> that's why it's so expensive if you think about every single word that apple had set in myriad for the last God, 20 years they've been using Myriad, I think. Mm -hmm. Everywhere that happens, in every part of the organization, it's a huge undertaking. So it was really interesting to watch because like, how how old is the Apple Watch? It's two years, two and a half years now? I can't remember. Two and a half, I think. Two and a half years. So that's where San Francisco came from, right? The San Francisco font was designed for a brand new context, which we really hadn't had before, which was to be very, very tiny on a very small device with incredibly high resolution, right? So why did Apple need to create its own font? It had a very new context, right? There are fonts that have been designed in that context, but I think they wanted to have essentially complete control over what was happening on the screen with the Apple Watch UI and, and Watch OS and all of that. The fact that they then decided to make that the, I, don't, I can't really speculate as to whether they said, we should completely redo all of the typography throughout the entire company and let's start with the font that we use on the Watch OS. I, I, maybe, knowing Apple and their sort of long-term thinking that they do perhaps that's how it happened or did they like it so much that they said well obviously we should now match this up to ios and let's bring it to the mac os and let's use it everywhere like i'm looking at my macbook here as we record and uh all the keys on the on the keyboard are set in san francisco as is the word macbook and you know what i mean like it just did it did it spread out and did at some point they say all right we're going to do it everywhere i don't know it's it's hard to say but it is to your to answer your question, it's very, very difficult to rebrand a company. I mean, think about what it would take if you did that for Relay. And you are two oh, people with a contract designer, but everywhere uh-huh. that it would have to be. It would be a nightmare. Yeah. It would be because undoubtedly there would be things that will pop up that you didn't even know had your logo on them, but they do. Yeah. On that point, right, about mm-hmm. about San Francisco. Now, I am... I'm not a designer. I This is not a skill that I have. Um, I, I cannot take things that I have in my mind and, and create a, a thing out of them, like from a from a perspective of creating something in Sketch or Photoshop. It's just not something that I'm really able to do. I, I can look at something and say what I like about it and say what I think should be changed about it, but I don't have... I lack the skills to create it. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I can assume how the process works for creating something like a logo 
or a hardware product design. I can understand that process and see how somebody may go from idea to execution. But one thing I cannot visualize is how you create a font. <laughs> because in my mind, letters look how letters look. And you can, and then I can be like, oh, they've been represented in this way, and this is slightly different, and that is slightly different. But like, I can't understand in my mind how you can create a font. It just seems like such a really, like, very abstract process to me of like, starting from nothing and creating letters which yeah. is just something that is so ingrained it is it seems like a very complex thing and you are probably one of the most qualified people to answer that question mm, yeah, well actually <laughs> i would say not i would say i have a tremendous amount of respect for the, the craft of type design but but f the the genesis of it is something that even i don't fundamentally understand but i do know I, I i do know this it's it is tremendously difficult there are very few people in the world that actually uh, make a living at it and that's not because of the industry i think the font industry is thriving it is that because the craft and the, the sort of meticulousness that is involved and the blend of like it's actually technically you know from a like uh, technical um, code perspective, like it is, it is technically difficult to do, and a remarkable form of art. And it, that blend of art and science is difficult to achieve in an individual, and I think seldom uh, benefits from collaboration. Although there are sometimes that happens. Anyway, that's a long way of saying that. First of all, I don't believe a type designer is always starting from nothing. I think even. Uh, if you look at the San Francisco font, you can see its heritage in things like Helvetica mm -hmm. and DIN and um, even Geneva on the Mac in 1984. There's a heritage there saying we're going to start from here and improve on this as opposed to, okay, blank whiteboard, I'm going to start drawing letter forms and see where I end. Right. So, <laughs> so in a lot of ways, I think it was also, it's also very much driven by context. What is the intended use? You would design a font for a, a screen on a tiny uh, smartwatch much, mm -hmm. with, with a much different set of goals than you would a font that is going to be on a uh, sign on the side of the highway that you pass at 100 kilometers an hour. Right. Very, very different. This is, this is why different variants exist of these fonts as well, right? Yeah, like there I mean, are I, many variants of San Francisco, I guess, for this reason. Yeah, because there's a lot of different contexts. So that yeah. same tiny little text that you see on the screen on your watch is, the, is, is set in the same, not the same font, but the same family as the 50-foot-tall letters across Moscone West at WWDC. Same same family of And the fonts. family is called the typeface. Is that the typeface? Oh, this is something yeah, that like people go. like me get confused <laughs> all the time, right? And it's like, oh, it's all a font. No. No. Font. Yeah, it doesn't. I don't care. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> there's a good 20 to 30% of my audience that just stopped listening right now. <laughs> uh -huh. No, I mean, it's all the, the nomenclature around all of it uh, goes back to the days when a font was a particular weight and style. So Times New Roman 9-point italic was a font because mm. it all went in the same drawer in the big... Uh, yes. Right. So yep. that's a font. And then the, the whole thing is a typeface. And, um, that makes sense. And then you, have, you can have multiple typefaces because you can have 
Helvetica and Helvetica Condensed, and those are, you know, and on and on. But And that's all part of a bigger family and, and things like that. There's a whole hierarchy in taxonomy, and um, even in the description I just gave you, I probably made two mistakes, I'm sure. Yeah, um, but the problem with that now is we are, or it is trying to be adapted to a world in which this isn't a problem. Like, Italic Times New Roman is not different anymore right it's just a different way to display it where previously it was because it was physical right yeah you had a different bit of metal that was nine point ten point yeah yeah which is not not really something that we have to think about too much anymore we don't because it's become so easy to switch between them but font uh, designers typeface designers uh, do and do very carefully and and we did a, a show here a couple months ago, a few months ago, uh, with Tim Brown, who is the, manages the Typekit library, uh, talking right. about this new wave of, of um, variable uh, weight fonts that interpolates between it. So instead of actually drawing all the points, you, you make math and do all of that. Hmm. So all of that is getting um, enormously uh, complex and powerful and so interesting. Uh, anyway, but though, too... Um, uh, back to Apple and back to San Francisco. Yeah, now they have a, vun- a bunch of different sort of members of the family. So there's uh, San Francisco monospaced that they're using in Xcode now. And, um, and that is a, a whole different context. But again, all of it feels coherent, like it goes together. Um, they have a display version that they would use for those giant signs. They've made it very robust. What's interesting to me is that they made it. That they did it internally. I mean, I'm sure they have used uh, type designers, and I don't know all of the sort of in- industry insider stuff around where San Francisco actually came from and who worked on it. But that is very common for very, very large organizations to have a bespoke typeface that they then control. The most fonts that you buy when you get the licensing forbid any sort of modification to them. You're not allowed to go mess with them. Uh, is one of the things we worked on quite a bit with Typekit because we were saying, like, we want to use your font in this service. And by the way, we're going to like make 15 different versions of it for all the different devices. And we're going to take characters out and compress things. And so we had to uh, put a lot of reassurance into the integrity of the, of the modifications that we were going to make to these typefaces. Uh, because they are essentially standalone, not only bits of code, but standalone works of art. And so there's a lot to it. So having a, a company like Apple commission and outright own completely a typeface uh, is a, is, it brings with it a lot of flexibility and, and adaptability and things like that. So mm. you see some companies do that. It's very, very expensive to have it done, especially if you think about like how much, how much budget do we have for a typeface? But if you think about it in the context of a brand from a company that's worth, I don't know, I don't even know what their market cap it is, but it's heading on its way to a trillion dollars. It's a reasonable expense uh, to put that kind of effort into, into that much, uh, into that kind of uh, flexibility for the family they've, yeah. they've created. It reminds me of like house colors and stuff because my old job working for a bank and doing marketing, they were like, this is the color we created. That is our color. Right. (laughs) Or like I I have a friend of mine who, uh, he works for a paper company and he was going through like how some brands will make a mix of a different dyes and inks to create their color of, of packaging. Yep. It's it's interesting that like, I mean, that stuff's harder to to own because I don't, I don't think you can, put a license on a color um but you, it's, it's that kind of idea oh you can trademark a color in a context like if you interesting if you were going to start a shipping company and like a delivery service and you got a bunch of trucks and painted them all brown huh 
I think I think UPS and huh. and and there's there's ways of defining color that's very specific, like Pantone matching colors and things like that. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong on the le- legality of it, but I, I I certainly think you could make a trademark claim around in this context that particular color of brown on a truck that makes deliveries is part of our brand just as much as our logo on the side is and you can't copy right. either one of them so um so yeah i think uh but then there's this bigger context of like you know a, a there's a very specific shade of red and when you put it on a uh aluminum can like that means coca-cola so they do in ways like own that color right so yeah. it's all part of the overall value of the brand for sure well, this conversation went a bunch of places I didn't expect it to, but it was really good. <laughs> um, I, uh, I I took it in some places that I don't know if any of us were expecting. Yeah, no, I like it. I like it. I appreciate you, you coming on the show. I'm going to plug a couple of things. First of all, I'll just go to Relay.fm and see all the podcasts. I think they're great. I am a particular mm-hmm. fan of your podcast with CGP Gray, the uh, YouTuber, uh, called Cortex. Um that one in particular resonates with me because it's so much about how we work, or I guess how yeah. you guys work, but how, how mm-hmm. we collectively do our work and how we think about our work. And it goes from the very philosophical, which I like, uh, into the really like nitty gritty of like automation and workflow on iOS and, uh, and things like that. But all of it in service of, I think, you know, the creative process. Yeah, we, me and Gray have very weird jobs, but we've also both worked in very normal jobs. I've, you know, in, in past lives, I worked for a bank and he was a teacher. Right. And we try and do our best to talk about the things that we do now, but think about how they could be also applied to people working in any walk of life. Um, and as you say, like we can go from talking about what it's like to receive email to here are some very specific settings for this iOS email app that might make it work for you. Yeah. And I would say you take you guys take it up even a bit more around things like, I would love to leave my job to pursue my passion. I don't know how. Yeah. And, and you talk yeah. a lot about that. Anyway, that's a good mm-hmm. one. Go, re- go start from the beginning and listen to all however many episodes of Cortex are. That's a good one. And all of the other Relay FM shows, I think, are fantastic. So, yep. so that's one place you are. Uh, what are you on Twitter? I should have written this down before uh, I started. I'm Mike. I-M-Y-K-E. Mike with a Y. I, yeah, Mike, Mike with, with a Y. And the Twitter account has the extra I. That's where in, I put in the, the I. I Mike. Okay, there. Anywhere else we should send people to see your stuff? I think that's good. Relay.fm. Okay. All the great shows. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Totally appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.